This is KGN News Morning Magazine for Thursday, January 26th of 2023. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Coming up on today's program, a number of city and county officials, business figures, and Boulder residents gathered at the Boulder Chamber of Commerce yesterday to discuss so-called high utilizers. We'll have a report back from Alexis Kenyon. And Radio Nibbles host John Lindorf will be in the studio with guest and fellow Boulder County foodie, Gil Asakawa. A BBC News update is at the bottom of the hour. Then at 8.30, I'll speak with a panel of local authors on writing Colorado through linked short stories. Coming up at 9 a.m., it's the January installment of the Radio Book Club. Today, we hear from best-selling author Usma Senahat Khan, who will talk about her latest novel, Blackwater Falls, a thriller set in a fictitious Colorado town that touches on themes of human rights, police brutality, and Islamophobia. Then at 9.30, Doug Gertner will be in the Denver studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. All that's still ahead this morning, but first, a look at the headlines with KGNU's Stacey Johnson. Boulder County Democrats held a virtual candidate forum Wednesday evening for the four contenders for the party's appointment to House District 12, a seat left vacant by former Democratic State Representative Tracy Burnett. Burnett resigned on the eve of the legislative session. She's facing criminal charges for allegedly lying about the location of her residence in order to run for re-election after the state's independent redistricting commission changed the boundaries of the district. The four candidates competing for the vacant seat are former Congressman David Skaggs, Superior Trustee Jennifer Cowish, Lafayette resident Alfredo Alvarado, and Louisville City Council member Kyle Brown. The vacancy committee of House District 12 Democrats will vote on a new representative this Saturday at 1 p.m. A CU study published in the journal Environmental Health found prenatal exposure to air plumes has adverse effects on infant cognitive development. KGNU's Alyssa Palazzo has more. New research from the University of Colorado Boulder followed over 160 Latino mother-infant pairs from Southern California, tracking the effects of pollutants on child development. The research found just under 20% of the infants exposed to high levels of air pollution in their second and third trimesters showed significant cognitive impairment. These infants displayed lower cognition, motor controls, and delays in language and communication skills. Lead researcher Tanya Aldarete told the CU Boulder Today that she recommends pregnant mothers avoid air pollutants to, quote, give their child the best start possible. The multi-year study focuses on residents of Southern California, but its findings are relevant to residents of the Denver Metro and Northern Front Range Corridor. Federal regulators have found air quality in this region to be out of compliance with Clean Air Act standards for over a decade. Of those exposed, the most highly impacted by the pollutants are often low-income communities of color. For KGNU, I'm Alyssa Palazzo. Boulder resident Christopher Drummond convened a panel discussion of public officials at the Boulder Chamber of Commerce Wednesday to discuss the city's population of individuals who Drummond refers to as high utilizers. KGNU's Alexis Kenyon attended yesterday's event and will have more on the event later in the morning magazine. Legislation that aims to facilitate development of affordable housing on state-owned land cleared the Senate Local Government and Housing Committee on Tuesday by a vote of 6 to 1. Senate Bill 23-1 calls for the allocation of $13 million to a fund that will test the concept and allow the state's public-private partnership P3 collaboration unit to broker real estate transactions between the state and developers. 
One of the bill's sponsors, Senator Dylan Roberts, a Democrat from Avon, told the committee the bill addresses land costs, which is one of the biggest barriers to more affordable housing. According to Colorado Newsline, funding from the bill will allow the Colorado Department of Transportation to clear land in Vail so developers can break ground on a stalled project to build 80 units of workforce housing. The legislation will go before the Appropriations Committee next. The Regional Transportation District will host two open houses in the coming weeks to provide the public with information about the Northwest Rail Peaks Service Study, which will evaluate a proposed commuter line between Longmont and Denver. The agency says the study will examine costs to upgrade existing track, develop rail stations, and how to provide service during peak hours for the line that would serve Arvada, Westminster, Broomfield, Louisville, Boulder, and Longmont. RTD study manager Patrick Stanley stated in a press release that the agency has faced challenges in making the rail line a reality, such as escalating costs, involving train operation requirements, and constraints, but says RTD remains committed to bringing a rail solution to the Northwest area. RTD's first open house will occur next week, Tuesday, January 31st, at the Hampton Inn and Suites, Boulder North. The second open house will occur Thursday, February 2nd at the Westminster City Park Recreation Center. Both events run from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Community members unable to attend the open house events can access a self-guided meeting at the RTD website from January 31st through February 21st. Front Range Community College is receiving $1.45 million in grant money from the Department of Education to help parents finish their degrees. KGNU's Jake Crowley has more. The grant will go towards the Child Care Access Means Program for supporting students enrolled at FRCC who are also parents. Students with children will be eligible to receive a portion of the grant money covering up to 60% of their monthly child care costs during the school year. The CCAM program was originally founded in 2018 to support financial stability for students and their families and to keep student parents enrolled. Front Range Community College projects the grant funds will last up to four years while helping to cover child care expenses for over 150 student parents. For KGNU, I'm Jake Crowley. Boulder's Unitarian Church at 5001 Pennsylvania Avenue will be accepting donated items as a mutual aid effort for migrants staying in emergency shelters and refugees arriving in Colorado. The donation drive event starts this evening from 4 to 7 p.m. and will run Friday evening from 4 to 7 p.m. and on Saturday from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Organizers are asking for new and gently used items that include duffel bags, backpacks, men's winter and work clothes, men's boots with sizes ranging from 7 to 10, and new or unopened items such as toiletries, socks, underwear, and shower sandals. For today's weather, the National Weather Service says skies will be mostly sunny for Denver and Boulder, with increasing clouds for Fort Collins. Today's highs will be in the upper 30s for the northern Metro Front Range region. According to the National Weather Service, winds could gust as high as 37 miles per hour for Boulder and 31 miles per hour for Fort Collins. The weather agency says it will become windier in and near the Front Range Mountains and foothills through late this afternoon and evening. Strong, gusty winds will then continue overnight. 
Peak gusts of 50 to 60 miles per hour or greater can be expected in wind-prone areas, including the peak-to-peak highway, Highway 93 between Boulder and Golden, and US 36 from Broomfield to Estes Park. Scattered light snow showers can be expected in the mountains today, while the plains will see some sunshine. Tonight, skies will be mostly cloudy with gusts as high as 40 miles per hour for Boulder. Tonight's lows will be in the upper teens, low 20s. For KGNU, I'm Stacy Johnson. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Shannon Young. A meeting took place yesterday at the Boulder Chamber of Commerce to convene a number of city and county officials, along with some residents, to discuss so-called high utilizers. The meeting was organized by an individual and was originally closed doors. But after City Council person Nicole Spear asked about it during last week's City Council meeting, it was open to the public. KGNU's Alexis Kenyon went to check it out and now joins me in the studio. Good morning, Alexis. Good morning, Shannon. So first, give us a sense of who all was in the room and for what reason. Yeah, so it was an interesting meeting. It took place at 10.30 a.m. and there was a whole lineup of Boulder bigwigs on the docket. So, uh, but there were about 75 people, 50 to 75 people there. And in the front, um, there were the speakers who had four minutes to speak. Up first was um, District Attorney Michael Doherty. There was Boulder County Commissioner Claire Levy, Police Chief Maris Harold, Boco Sheriff, Boulder County Sheriff Curtis Johnson, Director of Housing and Human Services, Kurt Fernhaber, uh, Council Members Mark Wallach and Tara Weiner. A lot of people, a lot of important people. Uh, there was a show of uh, hands, and I would say like 90% of the people were business owners. It was interesting because we were there to talk about our unhoused population, and there was a show of hands, and there were two unhoused people, only one who is currently unhoused. Um, I would say it was 99% white. Um, 99, I would say most people were in the age of between 50 and 70. There just wasn't a lot of diversity in the room. Um, And there were a lot of um, powerful, bolder leaders. Uh, How about the the income level, would you say? I wouldn't, I would, I would, you know, I didn't ask them directly, but I would say it would be fair to say these people are not struggling. There was a lot of very well-dressed, um, done up people people didn't look like they were they didn't even look like they're in the lower income groups I mean I I can't be certain but okay well uh the meeting that was some folks were very careful to point out that it wasn't about the unhoused population it was about so-called high utilizers can you define that term for me yes well this is also another kind of problematic part of the meeting. And, you know, there was a lot of good intentions in this meeting. I felt like people sincerely were trying to be caring. Um, But this whole idea of um, high utilizers was was problematic on its head. So um, the the person who organized the meeting, Chris Drummond, described it as people who are utilizing city services at a rate that's not matched by others. Um, But as soon as Michael Doherty got up, he he made a really good point about, and he he had asked Chris Drummond, you know, what 
what is what do you mean? Because we don't actually really have a clear definition of this. And maybe we should have know what we're talking about before we start making decisions. We have a clip of that. As Bart is aware, I emailed him to say, well, what are we actually talking about here? You're talking about the top 50 people who utilize services, top 50 people who have most frequent contacts with law enforcement, top 50 people with most cases in the justice system, or top 50 people who've caused the most harm in the community, because those are actually four different lists. So that was um, DA Doherty. Um, and also I wanted to play another clip from County Commissioner Claire Levy. She had a similar sentiment. Um, you know, ostensibly we're here to talk about high utilizers. Well, who are they? What does that mean? And does labeling people help us solve a problem? Uh, we need services uh, and in the prompt was what, what is your function, the county government function doing to address this situation? labeling people, saying what's not okay. Of course it's not okay to cycle in and out of jail, but that doesn't tell us what is okay and what should happen. So, yeah, this this sentiment of we can't jail our way, we can't police our way out of it, we can't send all homeless people or unhoused people to jail was, I think, it seemed like a consensus in the room, but there was a lot of talking past each other and not a lot of... Uh, really like I, I didn't feel like there was a lot of perspective sharing until there was one unhoused individual who came up and spoke. He's his name is Dre. Um, he's 28. And honestly, he had the most profound insight. I think of the entire two hour meeting. Here he is. It's the first time I'm ever like in this sort of setting. <laughs> um, so um I don't know what really makes a difference, but I do feel that the relationships is the most valuable thing. And like, I don't know, like it is frustrating, you know, them doing these things, but they seem to want to be good or be seen as good. You know, they want to know that they're a part of something. And when people continuously are attacking their behavior, it just reinforces it. So, I mean, I feel like to address it, you almost have to be on their side in a way. You have to let them address it in a way. Like they are always trying to be good people, but they just want to do it. They don't want to have somebody tell them or something of this nature, you know, and then giving them a role and a responsibility to help the community also can be quite impactful in getting them to change, like, you know. Okay, that was the only person in the room with uh, who has current lived experience with homelessness who spoke. So, Alexis, I'm just wondering, what, what are your takeaways? Where is this going? I thought there were some good intentions. I think there was a major oversight not bringing unhoused people to have a conversation about unhoused populations. This seemed like something that they can only remedy. They can't find solutions for people if they're not in the room. Um I think that going forward, maybe they will bring more unhoused people. I'm not sure. Um, but I think that it, it was good to get a conversation going. It was good to reflect on this stuff. And so if nothing else, that was the positive takeaway. Okay. KGNU News reporter Alexis Kenyon, thanks for the information. Absolutely. Thank you. You are listening to The Morning Magazine. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Up next is Radio Nibbles. <laughs> Thank you.
the salami, Tommy. Give with the gravy, Davy. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Try a tomato plate, too. Here's cacciatore, Dory. Taste the bologna, Tony. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Oh, you just got served an extra long portion of the Radio Nibbles theme song as we do some live radio musical chairs in here. But we do have John Lindorf in the studio with his special guest, Gil Asakawa. Good morning to both of you. Good morning, Shannon. And, uh, good morning. Good morning, everyone sitting around the uh, giant uh, KGNU uh, breakfast table all across <laughs> the globe. And... Uh, you know, I, I'm going to say right from the outset, my guest is uh, an old friend yes. of many years. We could have a whole separate long discussion about our competing careers as music critics, but yes. we're not, we're not going to do that. We uh, could. Uh, but uh, I invited Gil because uh, he's written a fascinating new book that uh, it really has uh, some central moments in Boulder and in Colorado. Hey, welcome, Gil. Thank you, John. Um, you know, what's the name of the book? The book is called Tabemasho, which means let's eat. So it's Tabemasho, let's eat the history of Japanese food, the tasty history, sorry, of Japanese food in America. Mm. But this is, in effect, a, a memoir of your eating life. It's <laughs> <laughs> right. It is. It starting I, with it, it has research in it it has history i actually learned a lot doing the research for the book i can yeah. you know where things come from in japan mm -hmm. where, when they started like, eating like, certain things ramen and right the whole but thing. but um but it really ended up being part memoir because yeah. it is about my life and yeah. learning watching my mom cook when i was a kid and i was born in japan so you know my earliest memories are of Japanese food and my mom cooking a combination of both Japanese and American food because my dad was born and raised in Hawaii. And then it it includes all this family stuff and personal memories. Yeah. and Which includes, uh, when, when did you get to Colorado? My family moved to Colorado in 1972. And, uh, I was in high school and, and moved what, to Lakewood. And what was the state of Japanese food in Colorado at the time? The Japanese food in Colorado... Um, at the time, there was zero in Boulder, but in Denver, there were maybe three. Right. <laughs> Kobayan, which did open in Boulder a little later, was in Lakewood at the time. That was one of the first Japanese restaurants. But also, you know, Akebono, Sakura Square right. in downtown Denver right. opened in 1973. Right, was, so there but, were a couple of restaurants there. But there was there. Vir virtually, uh, you know, kids these days, they don't understand. <laughs> there, was no, there was no sushi. No, at, you, at you, all, you, and and not a lot of Asian food. You couldn't run to King Supers and pick up, you know, a sushi. tray of sushi, lame or not. But you know, yeah, when I moved to when my family moved to the states, and I was in third grade in Northern Virginia, mm. um, yeah, kids would um, tease me and say, "Oh, you eat that raw fish, fish stuff? Ew, <laughs> that's gross!" And I swear to you, those those bullies grandkids today. Go to you King know the Supers. supermarket, King Supers, <laughs> and 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 eat sushi probably twice a week, and they think they're so cool and hip, and you know they're all yeah. that. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, things yeah. change, which is why I wanted to write this book. Um, yeah, because Japanese food has uh, become so popular in so many different ways, including yeah. Uh, mochi. Yeah, you <laughs> know, which is like in every supermarket too. 
You're uh, one of the great scenes in the book, though, takes place uh, in Boulder at a restaurant that I remember. <laughs> it was, um, you know, there, like I said, there were a few Japanese restaurants, but there wasn't really anybody serving sushi. Uh-huh. My mom would make sushi, uh-huh. like, for New Year's when my folks would invite some friends over and stuff. Uh, New Year's Day, not New Year's Eve or anything. Right. It's Japanese celebrating New Year's Day. Right. But... Um, the restaurant, the first restaurant that I think served sushi really in this area was it was in the 1980s, early 80s, and it was uh, a, a seafood restaurant named Pelican Pete's Which was on Arapahoe and um, uh, Folsom. I think those backcountry pizzas. Yeah, it is. is there now. Yes, it's right. a pizza place. Right. And yeah. the owner, and I don't know how this happened, but the owner put a sushi bar as you walk into the restaurant. And you go alongside the glass, you know, the windows, um, going into the restaurant, the dining room. Um, they put in a small sushi bar. And they, and brought, they brought in sushi chefs. A handful of sushi chefs, Japanese sushi chefs, uh, were working there. And my folks would go there. We'd go there as a family and eat probably once a month, once every other month. And we'd eat a ton of sushi. And I think they really appreciated having customers who could speak Japanese to them because I would think, oh, God, we, we ate over $100 worth of sushi, and it would always be like, you know, 50 bucks. Right. <laughs> because they got to ch- speak Japanese. Yeah. I, you know, I think they felt like we appreciated what they were doing. A lot of those sushi chefs went on to start things, uh, places like Sushi Tora. Right. Right. And um, uh, in, in Denver as well. I mean, they've they've really... Uh, kind of the diaspora of sushi started there. <laughs> That's a nice combination of uh, things there. <laughs> um, let's flash forward to uh, present day. It's remarkable the array of different kinds of Japanese food available in the past few years. Uh, suddenly, real ramen <laughs> is a thing. Yeah, it that is. That people are paying like 12, 15 bucks, for 12 a bowl, bucks for, yeah. for a bowl of soup. You know, yeah, and, and it's noodles. funny because that, that kind of ramen in Japan is still like under ten dollars u.s dollars you know uh and uh but yeah college students instant ramen was the the food for decades and then like i don't know 20 years ago uh real ramen started appearing in on the coast in 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 the u.s and then kind of moved into uh the denver area you reviewed a place oshima ramen Mm -hmm. uh in uh in denver uh years ago and, um, and my review is still on the wall. It was on the wall until they closed the place. <laughs> right, right. And that you quoted me saying something <laughs> about the about the cost or something. Well, uh, so it was good. Let's fast forward to, uh, well, actually, one one question. Are, are, do you have any pet peeves about what how most people think about Japanese uh, food? Or the misconception or something that just pisses you off? I, You know, <laughs> the thing that actually pisses me off the most is mispronouncing things. I've been at Japanese restaurants, and I've ordered udon, the fat white wheat noodle mm. soup, which I love, which is traditional Japanese. And um, and the Caucasian server, young woman, said, oh, you mean udon? <laughs> and I had to correct her in a Japanese restaurant. No, it's pronounced udon. You know, it's also like, it's not futon, it's futon. So that kind of stuff really <laughs> bugs me. Uh, I I wish more things that are traditional Japanese would catch on. 
Like? You know, there are things that are, I think, hip and starting to catch. Udon, like, I think, is going to catch uh, on. Okonomiyaki. Okonomiyaki which is, is... Which is... Westerners call it... Westerners describe it as a pancake. It's not really a pancake. Yeah. It's it's a it's a flat, sort of round, very organic looking mash of uh, a fritter, a, a, kind of like a fritter. Actually, yeah. that's probably a more accurate description. Yeah. Has corn, wheat, you know, stuff, yeah. meat, seafood. And, that, and uh, if you want to try that, go to Osaka's in Boulder. Yeah, are, Osaka's. Are, are there uh, a couple of other? Local Japanese restaurants that you go, yeah, uh, they're doing cool things. Amu serves okonomiyaki, and uh, Amu is my number one favorite restaurant. Uh, Izakaya Amu, and it's a tiny little place, tiny uh, little in, place. in Boulder next to Sushi's and mine. Yeah, same owner, right. and but it's a separate business. And then very, um, very traditional. Tokyo with an I, T O K I O, in the shadow of Coors Field is my favorite restaurant as well. They serve sushi and ramen. Um. So Gil, yes. What's 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 uh, what's the best thing you've eaten lately? Um, actually, I, there aren't enough Hawaiian restaurants in this area, and my favorite is Noke Aloha, N O K E Aloha, three words, and it's in Aurora. Uh, it's kind of a haul from, especially from here, but even for me in but, Arvada. But, but it's really le- good. Legit? Legit Hawaiian uh, food, Polynesian food. The couple that own it and run it, um, they're wonderful people. I love uh, them. And again, the name of your book. The book is called Tabemasho, Let's Eat, The Tasty History of Japanese Food in America. Um, my guest has been Gil Asakawa. Thank you for being here. It was too quick. Yeah, it was too quick. Come back again. I will. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host, Shannon Young. Special thanks to Stacey Johnson, Jake Crowley, Alyssa Palazzo, Alexis Kenyon, John Lindorf, and Gil Asakawa for their contributions to today's program. Stay tuned for an extra-large serving of local literature. That's coming up on the other side of the BBC News Headlines.